I'm reading a story to you today. This is Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. A couple of words of introduction. Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi. They have been preaching the gospel, and as they've gone along, a spirit-controlled, or we might say a demonic-controlled slave girl starts following them and calling out to the people, this, these people, Paul and Silas, are proclaiming the way of salvation. This goes on for a number of days. Paul gets exasperated and commands in the name of the Lord Jesus for the spirit to leave the girl. The slave girl has been making money for her owners. And now their means of financial gain is gone. And you can imagine when things start hitting the pocketbook, people's attention is gotten. Now we pick up the story. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Footnote, those days if you were the jailer and any prisoner escaped, you were put to death. Upon receiving such orders, the jailer put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your miraculous power. Thank you for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the uh, means of, of baptism 
a, a sign that we belong to you. Thank you for Tom. We pray your blessing on him and on us as we live out this glorious gospel. And we pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I appreciate the uh, context and explanation. That's great. Uh, all right. This is the third and final message in our short three-message series on believers' baptism. Uh, in the first two messages, we talked about what baptism is and what baptism does. Uh, this morning, we're going to consider the New Testament's answer to two additional and very important questions. Who should be baptized and when? The ceremony that, uh, among other things, welcomed a male descendant of Abraham into God's covenant community in the Old Testament was circumcision. And it's interesting thing about circumcision is that you find all of the relevant answers about circumcision in one chapter, and that's Genesis 17. Uh, in the same chapter in which God gave the instruction to Abraham concerning circumcision, he answered the questions, what was the reality or substance to which the ceremony pointed? How was the symbol to be observed? Who was to bear the symbol of circumcision on his body? And when was the symbol or ceremony to be performed? He answered all those questions in just one passage of Scripture. It's not quite that simple for baptism under the New Covenant. We have to look in multiple passages to get the whole story, the whole picture, and to get answers to all of these questions. But under the New Covenant, in the blood of Jesus, our Lord has given us a New Covenant sign. The symbol we've been talking about for a couple of weeks that pictures, pro proclaims, and celebrates uh, many things. Uh, marvelous, wonderful things that we've been talking about. As I see it, uh, Jesus actually commanded two different signs or symbols of the New Covenant. Both were mentioned in the worship this morning. The Lord's table and baptism. And this is just as I see it. The Lord's table proclaims and reminds us of what Jesus did for sinners. And baptism proclaims and celebrates what Jesus did for me. It's personal. It's very individual and personal, but it's in the presence of God's people and of any others who are watching that this, uh, this remembrance is proclaimed. In large measure, God's answers to the very important questions, who should be baptized and when, are found in his answers to the questions that we've already considered. What believer's baptism is and what it does. As we've already seen, believer's baptism is the God-ordained outward symbol that points to the substance of what God has already done, already accomplished in the heart and life of every person who has come to trust in Jesus Christ alone as the one and only Savior of sinners and as His or her personal Savior. The substance of believer's baptism has several wonderful facets. Marvelous spiritual realities that the physical ceremony pictures, proclaims, and celebrates. It proclaims that the person being baptized has already come to believe in Jesus Christ alone to make Him perfectly 
righteous in the eyes of our perfectly righteous God. It declares that the way Jesus accomplished that justification, that righteous standing of the believer, was by dying in the sinner's place to pay his entire sin debt to God, an infinite debt, forever. And by being raised from the dead on the third day, Jesus willingly bore upon himself the punishment, the terrible punishment that wretched sinners like you and me deserved from God. And he has clothed us, he has covered us in the righteousness of his own beloved son, Jesus, now and forever, all who have trusted in in Christ. Baptism proclaims that the believer has been brought into everlasting union with Jesus Christ, together with all of his redeemed saints. We have been identified with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. We have been buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised up with him in the likeness of his resurrection. We have died to self and to sin, and we've been made alive to God. And we are now servants of righteousness, slaves of righteousness and of God. Freed forever from the penalty and from the power of enslaving sin. The physical ceremony of believers' baptism does not accomplish any of these realities in the heart and in the life of the believer. Instead, as we've said many times, it pictures, proclaims, and celebrates already accomplished realities that God has done. Knowing what thus what baptism is and what baptism does gives us a, a big head start on understanding uh, God's answer to the question, who should be baptized? The answer is, is every man, woman, and child who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we find demonstrated in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts. Every time that we see the ceremony of believer's baptism actually put into practice by the first generation of Christians, we see these things that we've just discussed. In Acts chapter 2, we find the first recorded instance of believer's baptism. There was John's baptism. There was John's baptism of Jesus. But the first instance of believer's baptism is in Acts chapter 2. We looked at that passage in considerable detail last time. We're not going to do that again this morning, but here's what I want to make sure we note at this point about Acts 2. Verse 41 tells us that all of those who heard the gospel of Jesus preached by Peter on that day and who received his word were baptized. All who heard and received the message of the gospel were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just three verses later, Luke says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. When Luke talks about those who received the word preached by Peter, he's talking about those who believed it. They received it by believing it. All who believed were baptized the very same day that they came to faith in Jesus. Not weeks 
or months later, after each of those 3,000 people had somehow been vetted by the disciples to ensure the earnestness of their professions of faith. Right then, that same day, they were baptized. We're supposed to notice that. Sometime later, in Acts chapter 10, which we also looked at before, the Holy Spirit arranged a divine appointment between Peter and a Gentile man named Cornelius, along with several of his friends. After Peter had testified to Cornelius and his, and his cohorts about the life, the miracles, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances, and also the ascension of Jesus, and had declared that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Messiah foretold through the Old Testament prophets, Peter said this, Acts 10, starting at verse 42. He said, And he, Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now please pay close attention to this next part. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? Peter ordered. He commanded these, that these just redeemed Gentile believers be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't say, after you've dem demonstrated the durability of your profession, after you've shown us the evidence of real faith by your works, we can talk about getting you guys baptized. That's not what he said. He commanded that they be baptized that very day. I think we're supposed to notice that. In the next chapter, chapter 11, after Peter returned to Jerusalem, some of the Jewish saints in that city were upset by the fact that Peter had met with uncircumcised men. Jews weren't supposed to associate with Gentiles. And that in fact, he had had the gall to sit at a table and eat with those Gentiles. So Peter explained to his Jewish brothers who needed a little sanctifying how the Holy Spirit had revealed to him in a vision that under the new covenant in Christ's blood, God was no longer making any distinction at all between Jew and Gentile. And how the Holy Spirit had commanded and directed Peter to personally meet with Cornelius and his Gentile buddies and to share the gospel of Jesus with them. Listen to Peter's recounting of his meeting with Cornelius in Acts 11, verses 13 to 18. This is great. He, Cornelius, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, 
send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. This is Peter talking. Just as he did upon us at the beginning in Acts 2. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, Peter's saying that what he had just witnessed with Cornelius and his friends was what John the Baptist said Jesus was going to do. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them, to those Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down. They got a little sanctified. And they glorified God and they said, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. You see what Peter's saying here? He couldn't be any clearer. Immediately after Cornelius and his friends had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God had given to those brand new Gentile believers the gift of baptism in the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The same baptism that John the Baptist said Jesus would do that he wouldn't do. He, John, would not do. So how could Peter stand in God's way by refusing to perform the ceremony that pictured and proclaimed the real baptism that God had already done? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question for us. Here, yet again, Luke is very, very deliberate about pointing out the immediacy of the symbol right on the heels of the substance. The symbol of believer's baptism in water that pictured, proclaimed, and celebrated the salvation of a sinner by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, came immediately after the substance of that salvation had become true. And the substance became true at the very moment that those who heard the gospel believed the gospel. Granted, God attested in this case, God attested to the real baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism of these Gentiles through the miraculous manifestation of tongues. But as we'll see in a moment, that was an exception, an exception to the normal course of events when someone comes to faith in Jesus and gets baptized with the symbol that Jesus commanded. I and many others believe that the reason for the exception in Acts chapter 10 was that God was proving to the first Jewish believers that the gospel applied exactly the same to Gentiles as it did to them, to Jews. They needed to be slapped upside the head. They needed to see it very undeniably. In fact, that reality that Gentiles were included are now included in the covenant people of God is exactly what Acts chapter 10 and 11 are about from beginning to end. 
The wonderful episode that John, John Marr read for us from Acts 16 at the opening of the service gives us still more valuable insight into the ceremony that we know as believers' baptism. Before we consider just specifically what it tells us about baptism, I want to walk through what happened to the Philippian jailer again because it is a profound and beautiful story. Up to the time that the jailer went to bed that night, his day had been no big deal. Two new prisoners had been added to his watch that day, Paul and Silas. When they were handed over to him to be locked up, he very likely knew more, no more about them than that they were a couple of Jewish troublemakers who had caused a disturbance in the marketplace serious enough to get them beaten and bound by the authorities before being handed over to him, to the jailer. He had been instructed not merely to put them in the cell, but to, quote, guard them securely, which meant that the authorities still considered these two men to be a threat. So the jailer bound both their hands and their feet in stocks. They were in manacles chained to the wall and very possibly chained to each other. Then the jailer went to bed having no reason to expect anything eventful that night. There was zero chance that these men who had been shackled hand and foot and chained to the wall or to some device were going to make any further trouble. But the jailer hadn't met their God yet. He soon would. And that would change absolutely everything for him and for his family from that night forward. Just after midnight, there was an earthquake that jolted the jailer from a sound sleep. He ran toward the, the entrance to the prison. But as he approached the entrance, he noticed that the doors to the prison were wide open. In that instant, <laughs> the spiritual aftershock of that physical earthquake became infinitely more threatening to him than the shaking of the ground that had occurred a few moments before. The text says, supposing that the open doors meant that all the prisoners had escaped, the jailer then knew that his life was over, as my brother John pointed out. And he was right. His life was over but not in the way that he thought. In utter despair, knowing that he would surely be executed as soon as his superiors learned of a prison inexplicably emptied of its prisoners, he drew his sword so that he could fall on it and end his life without torture. But at that very moment, he heard the voice of Paul calling out to him, and the text says, calling out to him loudly, do yourself no harm, for we are all still here. Not one of the prisoners was still bound in shackles or chains. Their bonds had been released by the hands that created all things. But even though their bonds had been broken and the doors of the prison had been thrown open wide, not one of the prisoners had left the prison you can be sure that God orchestrated that through Paul and Silas. Suddenly, the jailer was gripped with an altogether different kind of fear. A very much greater kind of fear. 
A fear that had nothing to do with Roman authorities. When he fell to the ground before Paul and Silas, the salvation that he cried out for was not salvation from powerful men. He knew that there was a far higher authority to which he had just been called to account. He said, sirs, <laughs> what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answered, <laughs> believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all of those who were of his household. Luke tells us that that very hour of the night, the jailer washed the wounds <laughs> that Paul and Silas had received and, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And the very next verse tells us that he brought them into his own house and he rejoiced greatly. Sorry. Having believed in God with his whole household. Man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. <laughs> the next morning, the same magistrates that had beaten Paul and Silas and handed them over to the jailer now sent men to the jailer very urgently with one very concise instruction. Release those men! He didn't have to ask which men. Having brought the jailer to the absolute end of himself, God had in that same instant <laughs> lovingly and graciously brought that spiritually dead man into real and eternal life forever. This powerful real life story fortifies all that we've already seen in the previous passages regarding who is to be baptized and when. And it adds still more to that understanding. Just as with the Jews in Acts 2 and the Gentiles in Acts 10, it was by hearing and believing the word of the cross that the Gentile jailer and his family were saved. The physical baptism of these brand new believers was not in any way the cause of their salvation. It was the proclamation of their salvation. Their baptism pictured, proclaimed, and very joyfully celebrated the saving work that God alone had done in their midst and in their hearts. A third thing that we see in this passage is that if God holds those who baptize others accountable to test the legitimacy of their profession of faith by observing the evidence of that faith in the form of transformed behavior, before baptizing them, then this passage is a really terrible example of what God wants us to do. Even though it takes up a big chunk of space in the book of Acts, and we're clearly supposed to pay attention to it. It's not a terrible example. Like the other ones that we've seen, God is saying, church, here's how you do it. Paul and Silas baptized the jailer and his family having nothing more to go on than their joyful profession of their belief in Jesus Christ. They didn't even have, Paul and Silas didn't even have the outward sign of tongues to help them test the legitimacy of these professions. In fact, there is no indication in this passage at all that any such test even entered the minds of Paul and Silas. I think we're supposed to notice that. 
Luke's wording is very deliberate. Immediately, the jailer was baptized, he and all his household. Through the simple ceremony of believer's baptism, Paul and Silas declared and celebrated together with all who were present what the jailer and his family testified that God had already done in their hearts. They welcomed this family of brand new believers, young and old, into the household, the spiritual household of God, without hesitation and without reservation. I hope we're seeing a pattern here, but we're not done yet. Eight chapters earlier in the book of Acts, I know I'm not going in sequential order, but eight chapters earlier, Luke recorded yet another believer's baptism, and he placed the same very deliberate emphasis on the immediacy of the baptism right on the heels of the new believer's faith in Jesus. Eight chapters earlier, we find the, the event of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But back in chapter 6, the disciples had appointed seven men to serve in the role of deacon, the first deacons in the New Testament church, so that they would wait on tables at the daily serving of food at the place where the saints regularly gathered together so that the elders could, quote, devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word instead of waiting on tables. One of those seven men was named Philip. Another was named Stephen. You can read about him in chapter 7. God had more in mind for Philip than waiting on tables. That happens a lot. Chapter 8 tells us about one little piece of God's plan for Philip. Acts 8 verse 3 says that right after the martyrdom of Stephen, who had also been one of those first seven deacons, a very influential Jewish man named Saul of Tarsus began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. Saul of Tarsus, that persecutor of Christians and that militant enemy of Christ, is the same man that you and I know as the Apostle Paul. Chapter 9 explains what happened to him. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, Therefore, those who had been scattered... And he's talking about because of the harsh persecution that was spearheaded by Saul, went about preaching the word. And Philip, the deacon, went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The deacon was an evangelist. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So God gave him miraculous signs as he did with the disciples. As chapter 8 progresses, we see that Peter and John, two of the apostles, joined Philip for a time in Samaria, preaching the gospel throughout the cities of that region. Then Peter and John headed back to Jerusalem, but God had another divine appointment prepared for Philip. Verse 26 says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but the roads that lead from Jerusalem to other places, a lot of stuff happened on those roads. He rose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was a Gentile convert to Judaism. 
And he was returning after worshiping Jerusalem, sitting in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. He was riding, riding in his chariot that someone else was driving. And the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture he was reading was this. And then the verses afterward quote from Isaiah 53. Anybody know what Isaiah 53 is? It's the great suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12 that's all about the substitutionary atoning death and resurrection and exaltation of the One who is going to come and save sinners. It was written about 700 years before Jesus came and did every bit of it in perfect detail. By God's marvelous orchestration, that was the passage that the eunuch was reading. By the way, I, I say this all the time, but I will add, that is the clearest passage in Old or New Testament about substitutionary atonement. Him for us, Him for us, Him for us, over and over and over. Now let's continue in Acts 8 from verse 35. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from that Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what's to prevent me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, I deliberately skipped verse 37 because the textual evidence is pretty strong that that verse was not original. It was added. And that's why in almost all of your New Testament English translations, you'll either see it in the margin or you'll see some notation that says we're not sure about this one. Don't let that freak you out. Okay, There's a lot of strong evidence here, but what is said in this passage is mind-boggling. It's beautiful. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no, no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now there are several things, including a couple of important insights about believers' baptism that stand out in Luke's narrative of this wonderful episode. First, the Old Testament is a great place to find the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you know that? We did a series on that a while back. Christ in the Old Testament. It's powerful. You don't even have to go to the New Testament to preach the Gospel. You should, but you don't have to. Second, the mode of the eunuch's baptism was pretty clearly full immersion in water. It says both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. So they both walked down into the water and then Philip baptized him. That looks like immersion to me. Even though Luke, the third, even though Luke doesn't mention anyone other than Philip and the eunuch in this, in this narrative, those two men were surely not alone when this happened. The eunuch was a court official of the queen of Ethiopia. who was, He was in charge of all of the queen's treasure. A man in such a trusted position would not be traveling alone and he definitely wouldn't be driving his own chariot. 
he would have an official entourage. My point in that is that there were surely witnesses to this baptism as there should be at any baptism. Based on all that I find in the New Testament about believer's baptism, I am not personally a fan of baptizing a new believer in his bathtub with no one else to watch. If the heart is right, you know, I'm not going to pounce. But I don't think that's what baptism was intended to be. Are you with me? Baptism is supposed to be a proclamation witnessed by others. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now let me be real clear about this. I absolutely do not believe that those two verses in Romans 10 add a new condition to the glorious gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are many, many other passages, including ones that we've seen this morning, that condition that salvation only on faith in Jesus Christ, which is God's work in the first place. But Psalm 107 verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I do believe that Paul's forceful exhortation in Romans 10 is to be taken seriously by every believer. Let the one who by faith has received the mighty salvation of Jesus Christ say so. In the presence of all who will listen and all who won't. To some, we will be an aroma from death to death and to others an aroma from life to life. And God is glorified either way. Fourth, yet again, as in all the other passages that we've seen, there was no opportunity in this narrative for Philip to test the legitimacy of the eunuch's profession of faith on the basis of his works before he baptized him. No such test is even mentioned in the text or in any of the other passages that we see in which a believer is baptized. I think we're supposed to notice that. Finally, there was absolutely no delay between the events recorded here. And the fact that there was no delay is again very deliberately pointed out by Luke in his narrative of the event. Just as was the case with the Philippian jailer and his family. Just as was the case with 3,000 people in the day of Pentecost. Just as was the case with Cornelius and his friends. Luke tells us four things happened here in rapid succession. Philip preached the gospel to the eunuch, starting with Isaiah 53. The eunuch believed the gospel that Philip preached. The eunuch immediately asked to be baptized, and Philip baptized him without delay. In light of every passage we've seen this morning, I have to conclude that we're supposed to notice that. Let's get back to the original questions. Who should be baptized and when? Well, what do the four passages that we've just considered tell us about God's answers to those two questions? Who should be baptized? Everyone who hears the gospel of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ and believes it. Everyone who hears the gospel and declares their faith in Jesus is to be baptized. When are they to be baptized? 
pretty quickly. Now, please hear me out. I do not believe that we should assume that everyone who says he is a Christian or who speaks the words, I believe in Jesus, has actually understood and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not supposed to baptize unbelievers. In fact, considering how many false gospels there are in our culture and in our time, and how many people buy into those false gospels, I believe our approach should be the opposite. We should assume that most people who call themselves Christians aren't. And that means it's exceedingly important, beloved, that we make a diligent effort to discover what a person who professes to be a Christian actually believes. Do they believe the biblical gospel or do they believe something else? Because of the wonderfully scandalous nature of the true gospel, there are a couple of questions that go a long way toward clarifying what a person actually believes about Jesus. These aren't inspired questions, but I've found them to be amazingly effective at smoking out unbelievers. The first is, if you died and stood before God today, and he said to you, why should I let you into my kingdom and my presence? Why should I, a perfectly, the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God, let you, a sinner, into my presence? If the person's answer to that question includes any element at all of what he has done or will do for God, he should not be baptized until the only merit that he claims is the merit of Jesus and until the only qualification that he claims to stand blameless in the sight of God is the righteousness of Jesus given to him as a free and entirely undeserved gift. It's an easy question. It's the question that God used to save me. My high school biology teacher asked me that question. Second question, what do you deserve from God? It's very short and it's amazingly effective. If the person's answer to that question is anything other than eternal condemnation, if they say, well, I don't deserve much, you should say, it's a lot worse than that. If they say, I don't deserve anything, you should say, it's a lot worse than that. That person should not be baptized until he readily agrees with God's assessment that he deserves only one thing from God, and that is eternal banishment from the presence of God and from the glory of his power because the light has no fellowship with the darkness. Conclusion, should you be baptized? Probably a great many of the people here this morning have been, maybe some have not. If you've already been baptized as a believer, the answer is no. Unless maybe it was in a bathtub by yourself. If you came to faith after you were baptized, the answer is yes. Baptism is for believers. If you were baptized as an infant or even as, adult, as an adult, but before you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, the symbol of baptism was divorced from the substance and the symbol was, min was rendered meaningless. You have every reason to delight in the fact that God has both commanded you and given you opportunity to publicly proclaim what He has done for you in Christ. We should delight in this, beloved. Even if you're, even if you're shy, 
There is cause to delight in this. There are certain Christian denominations that do a really solid job overall of faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God, but that practice infant baptism. In doing so, they are turning the God-ordained symbol of something that has already happened into a symbol of hope that something will happen, that that infant will someday come to faith. They are sort of superficially welcoming that child into the community of believers in the hope that he will become a believer. That's not what baptism is for. It's called believer's baptism because it's for believers. Jesus commanded us to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that He commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Infants and unbelievers are not disciples of Jesus. One more scenario. If you were baptized as a believer after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but by the mode of sprinkling rather than immersion, I personally do not believe you are compelled to be rebaptized by immersion, but I know there are folks here who differ. I just don't think it's I don't think it's a big deal. And let me just give you a little illustration why I don't. How many of you think, I mentioned this before, but how many of you think that when Jesus sat at the table with his disciples for the first Lord's Supper that they drank grape juice out of thimbles? <laughs> or that they ate little pieces of crackers? instead of passing around a loaf of matzah of unleavened bread. Uh, guys, the symbol is not the substance. Let's not, get, let's not make a huge deal out of the symbol. Let's make a huge deal out of the substance. You with me? All right. There are a couple of further challenges that I, I want to consider. We're almost done here as we wrap up this short examination of believers' baptism. At CBC, we take the Lord's command regarding the Lord's table very earnestly and we put it into practice with great regularity and much discipline. We do it every week. People are baptized only once as a believer. But my question is, are we doing the same... Are we practicing the same diligence and the same consistency when it comes to our Lord's command to baptize every person who declares their faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ that we apply to the Lord's table. If not, maybe we need to fix that. Because of the ubiquity of false gospels in our age, I completely agree with CBC's practice of having one or more elders interview each candidate for baptism to see if what they believe lines up with the biblical gospel. But beyond that, I believe we must leave the discerning of men's hearts to God. When it comes to the baptism of a young child, I think that discussion about what, what the content of, is of their faith is, is very, very important. But friends, I have known of four-year-olds who got baptized and that stuck like nobody's business and they've walked with the Lord ever since they first professed faith. And I've known 25-year-olds who, who got baptized and then turned away. And, and it seemed like it was just not a legitimate profession. God does not hold you accountable to discern what's in the heart of another human being. He does hold us accountable to check out their profession. 
Our worship openers often explain that anyone who is trusted in Jesus is welcome to partake of the elements of the Lord's table and that those who have not trusted in Him should let the elements pass and just ponder what they're hearing in the service and seeing. We don't apply a test of outward performance before we permit a person to partake of the elements together with the saints. And we leave the determination about whether a child participates in the Lord's table to the child's parents. Surely we know that that approach could result in an unbeliever partaking of the elements. There's no question that it has at times. That does not at all mean that we are treating the Lord's table as anything other than a sacred reminder of the atoning death and resurrection and of the imminent return of our glorious Savior and Lord. It simply means we do not assume that we can know what is in another person's heart. Read 1 Corinthians 4, the first five verses. We are as clear as we can be about what the symbol of the Lord's table and the symbol of baptism proclaim and celebrate, but we know on the basis of God's clear declaration that He's the only one who can see into a person's heart. If in any way our practice of believer's baptism doesn't match up with the pattern and the command that we find in the New Testament, then perhaps we need to make an adjustment. God does hold His church accountable to obey His command to baptize every person who declares his or her faith in Jesus Christ. And He commands every person who believes in Jesus to say so through the Christ-ordained observance of believers' baptism. Dear Father, thank You for this short series. Thank You for all that Your Word declares. There are many things we have not had time to, to go into, but I pray with all my heart, Lord, that You would, you would uh, use this, this little investigation from Your Word to, uh, to build up this church, to strengthen us, to make us bold in our witness. Father, to make us faithful in proclaiming the work that You do on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.